What's up, Simple Classic Castro listeners? Now, this week, we're going to be listening to a recording that I did with Andrew Howe, who puts together a lot of trusts for folks, but not those type of trusts that just merely uh, get you around probate. Again, a little PSA for you folks. If you guys have a will, that ain't going to work, guys. That's going to go through the probate process, and it's going to take a lot of your money. You need to have a trust, so it skips over that and doesn't get tied up in the process and all your dirty laundry or how much you have gets up but out there in the public domain so you want to trust but not any trust is what we're going to talk about today we want to trust that facilitates the wealth so it grows creates a structure for the next offspring to come along and not really screw it up now i have a new child now and although i'm changing like 13 diapers a day at some point i'd like this person to grow up maybe not need to grow a multi-million dollar real estate investment company. We just want them to be good contributors to society or good people and just to be happy. Certainly don't want them to be a cocaine or heroin addict or a lot of trust fund kids. They just become lost because they haven't had the need to go get a job to create skills that the world uses. And therefore, they haven't got any traction in life. I think at the very least, want to create a structure to allow offspring to take our wealth and to just not mess it up. So how do we do that? So one of the biggest activities I'm doing right now as I'm building up staff and creating a growing company is values. And I see this no different than creating a family office and a trust, which is just a document that kind of pulls together your family office going into the future. So going back to the business, right? A lot of the is predicated on your values and Some of my values, I'll go through them right here, just listed out in order. Four of them that I have written down now is honor, ownership, accountability, initiative, and Kaizen. So going in more detail on that, uh, honor, we say what we're going to do. We don't retrade with our sellers. We honor a commitment to our clients to get their expectation. And if not, we'll make it right. So similar to integrity, no chicken shit and no nickel and diming. If something is wrong, call me out. That's what honor is to me. Ownership and accountability. If there's a failure, there are no excuses. We take ownership and fix the problem. Too often, I see people just not take accountability, blame it on other people. The last, the third out of the fourth that I have now is take initiative. This kind of goes hand in hand with accountability, where it creates a business or a family where everybody's empowered to improve the processes and to make decisions. A lot of people out there floating around make like they don't have the ability to change their life. It's a value that needs to be instilled. And the last one is for some strange reason, the way I'm wired up, I always like to be implementing new things and improving the processes, improving myself. Kaizen is the constant improvement. And this kind of goes in with the whole accountability and initiative for my staff is I don't dictate processes or means or methods. I don't like when people do that to me. In fact, it drives me so crazy. That's been one of the big motivators to leave an E2 job. But I want people to create the processes where it works for them. And I want these values to be distilled down to everybody in the organization. And these are the values that I want to create in my family office. But now here's where the bridge and the difficulty happens. You may have these values or you may not have these values created at this point, which you really should sit down with your partner and figure what these things are. But how do you create a document that rewards these types of values, such as honor, doing what is right, making the world better than you found, and taking ownership accountability. Maybe the trust creates a certain amount of money, but once you run out of it, you're done. 
or maybe there's some kind of, for Kaizen, the value of Kaizen, maybe the trust creates this program where you're able to get essentially unlimited funding, but you need to be constantly improving yourself. Sure, you might squander it, maybe go into a bad business deal here or there. But if you're continually developing yourself, at some point, something's going to hit and you're going to get that traction and you're going to be able to grow the family office even more. And initiative, nothing's coming to mind right now. These are the ideas that are different to everybody. And obviously, my family office is going to be looking different than yours. A lot of us in the family office of Hana Mastermind, which you guys can join at simplepassycashflow.com slash journey are going to be having an in-depth discussion about this in the future. And more, I think it's going to be better in person when we do the annual retreat in January of 2022, when everybody comes down to Hawaii. These are the homework that I think people need to do before they start to create that family office document. That document can be changed in the future, but I think the quicker you start to create this value system, I think it starts to give you the structure and the path to create what kind of behaviors you want to motivate. So I was watching the movie, I Jiro Dreams of Sushi. So it's that Netflix uh, documentary where that, I think, three-star Michelin star restaurant in J- Japan, where this guy, Jiro, if you watch him, he's a G. The way he do- does things is very stoic. And I like that. And it's a lot of the values that I, you know, the way I live my life by but it may not be for you. And I think that might be a good way to brainstorm or at least get the conversation started with your spouse or with your kids as you're watching these types of documentaries or, or movies, even movie stars, right? Why do you like James Bond? Why do you like this certain character? What are the values that this person or this potentially fictitious character represents? What are the values that this person demonstrates? And start to list them down and then start to use that as a brainstorming point to start to narrow down your top four to 10 values that you want to use in your trust. But anyway, that's just a little bit of my input. If not, you're just starting out in the dark. You know, this is not a surefire way to get to your family office trust document, but that's just one thing I was thinking about the other day. I was starting to create my business and kind of retinker my family office document. And if you guys haven't yet, please check out the website, Simple Passive Cashflow, and join our private investor club at simplepassivecashflow.com slash club. And here's the show. This is a story about a dude named Lane. He moved to the mainland and bought one place to stay. And then one day he went and tried to rent them out. And then he became one real investor man. Hey, Simple Passive Cashflow Nation. Welcome. Today, we are going to be talking to Andrew Howe, who does a lot of trust for folks in our group. And we're not going to really get into LLCs or all those entities, but everybody says that you need to have a trust. And most people in our group are like, all right, cool, a document that kind of avoids probate. But how do you create that document that is a living blueprint to pass down your wealth? After all, 90% of folks' wealth usually goes away in two to three generations. I know very well. I went to private school. I went to school with a lot of rich kids who's second generation, third generation wealth. And I can see the wealth just squandered away. Not many of us are simple passive cash flow listeners who are first generation wealth creating their wealth and want to be good stewards of it and want to see it go somewhere, maybe something <laughs> even bigger and better. But uh, welcome, Andrew. Yeah, let's dive into the topic here. Yeah, it's it, it was a huge topic before we started recording. We talked that, that this is going to be a big topic to discuss and 
let's try to find a starting point. I, I want to just make it clear. I think the only time you don't need an estate plan, a will, trust, there's a lot of things that go on with that, is where you really just don't care what happens with your assets when you die. And of course, there's a, a lot more going on with that. If you have minor children, you need to think about guardianship and all of those things that go along with it. So foundational estate planning is a must, in my, but that's coming from an estate lawyer. What I want to concentrate on more is is what I would bet in a lot of your viewers and listeners and so forth are, are thinking about, which is what our generation is thinking about more and more. This idea that we want to do things for our children that give them a good start in life, give them educational opportunities, give them entrepreneurial activity or potential things that they could do there. We work with hardworking professionals looking to opt out of investments for the clueless. I mean, mainstream investing. We work with people we have a direct relationship while enjoying higher returns and a quicker path to financial freedom. I personally move my endorsement from turnkey rentals to syndications as my net worth has grown. However, the downside of many of these deals is that you need at least $50,000 to invest, and the frequency of deals that meet my criteria is sporadic. Check out my article at simplepassivecashflow.com slash OFUND and learn how I always have cash on hand by using the American Home Preservation Fund as part of this one-two punch to be ready for a great deal while still making a double-digit return. I have been investing in AHP since 2016. AHP is a crowdfunding solution to the mortgage crisis in America, where collectively the fund and investors like you pull their money together and get great bulk discounts on distressed mortgages. It's a business model that I think gets stronger should a bump in the economy come because this is where there will be even more distressed inventory for AHP to purchase. The American Home Preservation Fund aims to keep people in their homes so you can make a 10% return while making a positive social impact. Invest in as little as $100 by going to ahpservicing.com investors. And if you want the free Burn Zone book and learn about George Newberry's story, please send me an email at lane at simplepassivecashflow.com. I like to buy stuff. Well, that's a liability. But what we don't want to do is just dump on top of them a bunch of cash and, and see these trust fund babies, right? You mentioned three uh, shirt sleeves, a shirt sleeves in three generations. It's a common theme. In fact, I just had been passed this quote from the, the founder of Dubai. I'm not going to even try to say his name because I'll butcher it. But he says, hard times create strong men, create easy times, create weak men, weak time, create difficult times. Many will not understand it, but you have to raise warriors and not parasites. This is a worldwide issue. It's not United States. Everybody gets this idea that if they don't create some sort of motivational aspect within their planning, they really do run the risk of creating a situation where kids, as Warren Buffett would say, have so much that they can do nothing. You want to give them so much they can do anything, but not so much that they can do nothing. So how do you do this? And how I typically see most estate plans is work the way they did 100 years ago, where mom and dad pass away. The assets then get divided into as many shares as there are children. And then that share of the estate gets dumped on that child, maybe not immediately, but when they're 25 or 30 or 35, and the asset now goes to that child. And, and again, this is all planning that is the same it was 100 years ago because of how that generation viewed wealth. Our grandparents, great-grandparents, depending upon the age of the audience, the greatest generation who unfortunately is leaving us too quickly, 
they viewed wealth completely differently. There was a true economic hardship that they lived through. They weren't eating and standing in lines to, to get soup. And our generation, we've lived through some interesting times, great recession. We were all unhappy. COVID certainly been unhappy, but we're still eating. There's that hierarchy of, of priorities based upon safety. Human beings are always searching out safety. And my grandpa, he had the saying that I always loved, which was money isn't everything, but it sure quiets the nerves. And the idea being that if you can't, or you don't know where your next meal is coming from, how are you going to feed your family? As they were coming out of the Great Depression, and that was no longer an issue that was creating safety. And that way they said, okay, what we want our estate planning to do is solely concentrate on the financial wealth and how we get the most financial wealth to that next generation but without any real thought about the consequences of the impact that wealth might make. What we try to do in our trust just to, to draft them in a different way is number one, they should be personalized. You really shouldn't have a trust that is cookie cutter. And this is just opening Pandora's box, or I guess it's the man behind the curtains in my industry. Most estate planning lawyers have a software program that create your estate planning documents. They punch your name into it. And it pumps out a document that it looks like the one they did five minutes. There, there's nothing wrong with that. And there are some clients that want to put some effort into it, just doing the basics. And maybe their children are just amazing stewards over their assets. Although I have some different reasons, not leave it to a kid ever, but they're much more pragmatic reasons that we can talk about. The point being is that it ought to be personalized. I ought to be able to read your trust and or read my trust. And you ought to learn more about who the Howell family is instead of just my name and my kids' birthdays. And there's very little personalization that goes on within estate planning these days. We call it trust mill. You run people in, they go through this very set process, you pump out documents that look the same as everybody else's, and you sign them. So personalization is a big thing for me, and, and we'll get into this and how it weaves into some of the you know, books we've written and so forth and our thought process on that. But really what we're trying to, to deal with are these three erosive effects that we see with wealth transfer. And this is how we do planning a little bit differently than I think other planners do. The first erosive effect is the division of an estate. If mom and dad have a $10 million estate and they pass away, they have four children. Each of those kids are getting two and a half million bucks. If you're looking at the standard estate plan and the power of 10 million is not the same as the power of 2.5 million, right? You can get into deals and real estate projects and all of these different kinds of things at a $10 million investment level than you can at 2.5. And it has more power. You can get better terms, better interest rates. You have you know, power, the golden rule, he who has the gold rules. It's one of those ways of maintaining the family financial power. So how do you do that? We think of it as the mine shaft approach. You keep things together as the family as a whole, instead of the shotgun approach, which is at death, we're just going to spray it out to, to the kids in, in, in proportionate shares or disproportionate shares, whatever. So we're preserving the power of the family wealth by holding it all together. The second thing that people need to be concerned about, especially as high net worth individuals and, and, and high income earners, is which are exclusively my clients, they are going to ex exceedingly be looked at in the future to pay the tax bill. It's already the case and it's going to get worse. I don't really care about what your political preference is. I don't care who you voted for, but from a tax perspective for high net worth individuals and high income earners, 
what happened on November 3rd is not good. We're going to be some experiencing some significant tax hikes. And one of those is related to this success tax that people have to pay. When you're too successful, the federal government and some state governments, depending upon where you live, want another crack at your assets. They want to come in and tax you at the federal level, it's 40%. And states are usually lower than that, and usually on a grinding, sliding scale. But what we're hearing now out of Washington is there could be a big push to go back to the 2009 level. Under current law, before that 40% tax kicks in, every U.S. citizen can give away 11.7 million, entirely estate tax-free at their death. So as a married couple, that's $23.4 million. It's a heck of a lot of money. And most people are in debt when it boils down to it, let alone having positive net worths in excess of $23.4 million. But what we're hearing out of Congress right now, or I shouldn't say Congress, uh, Washington, let's say, is that there's going to be a push to, to lower that from 11.7 to 3.5. That's what you can give away a state tax free, $7 million as a married couple with a potential 55% tax on anything over and above it. In essence, this is the Bernie Sanders plan. This is what he proposed through the campaign. Now, keep in mind, the state tax is just like any other tax law change is political, and there'll be the whole political process that goes along with that, not just what the public sees, but the back office. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And I think that as the negotiations on this estate tax goes down, it's ultimately going to come out to be somewhere close to where we were under Obama where you could give five to six million as an individual, 10 to 12 million as a married couple, and then a 35, 40% tax on anything over and above. I think that's where it's going to wind up. I, of course, don't have any clue for sure, but I don't think anybody really does. But that does mean that 10 million or 7 million, it's a lot of money, but it's nowhere close to 23. Many more people are going to be affected. And another really bad part of the estate tax lane is that, first of all, the IRS demands payment of the estate tax within nine months following your date of death. And the taxes have to be paid in cash. So let's say your group has a lot of real estate. It's not a very liquid asset, right? And if at your death, you have a real estate holding of $15 million and all you can pass is $10 million away, the other $5 million being subject to a 50% tax, two and a half million dollar tax bill owed nine months in cash. So where are you going to get that liquidity to pay that? Maybe you've got to sell real estate and sell it quickly. So you're not necessarily getting the best price for it. So estate tax planning is a really important thing. It's much more of the pragmatic tax stuff that you do want to get attorneys and accountants and so forth involved in. But I also do believe that the estate tax is a negligence tax. And the only people who pay it are those who fill the plan. So planning around the estate tax is an important thing for clients that are at that level. And I think if there are clients that expect to have a $10 million estate or in excess, that you really do need to look at doing some greater estate tax planning. I just don't see the government needing less money in the future. Yeah. So a few points here I want to bring up. I think a lot of people are listening $10 million or thinking that's a lot of money. That ain't that much money. Just in the last couple of years, oh, we've had a lot of people come into my group that are $10 million or more. And I've got to assume that there's a lot more out there that we just don't know about that are hiding. I bet you three or four times a day, I tell people that they are multimillionaires and they they don't feel that way because cash flow or whatever, I'm still living paycheck to paycheck. Maybe not that bad, but you also have an IRA, a 401k, you have equity in your home, you have a second home, you have life insurance, 
that has a death benefit maybe that's really high. You have equity in all these rental properties, and maybe you have a privately owned company, right? You're an entrepreneur in some way. And one of the other issues with, with clients that have privately owned companies, you don't know what that company's worth. It's worth what somebody's willing to come in and pay you for it. And the, the problem is that at your death, the IRS is going to try to determine a value and they are going to try to determine it's worth as much as they possibly can. So some of the state tax planning involves you coming in and taking control of what you think your estate is worth at this time, reporting all that to the IRS and then hoping they don't challenge you on it. But if they do, no big deal. No planning should be done in a way that is, we had this, this saying, which is, in tax planning, pigs get fat, but hogs get slaughtered. You know, do what you can, but don't do too much. But it, you also just want to stay on top of it. And even though you may not have people that you work with that are at that level yet, chances are they're going to get at that level. And unless maybe Baron Von Trump gets elected president in eight years or something, where the estate tax might go back up to a $100 million credit that you could give away estate tax free. I just don't see that happening. For some reason in this world, there has been this uh, villainization of success, and I have no idea where it came from. I, I, I can remember walking down the street with my grandpa, who I, I worked at his office as a kid, and he worked in downtown Salt Lake, and I, I love cars. I've always loved cars. I've always been into it, and even was back then, and I can remember still to this day, this Lamborghini, which was my absolute dream car, right? The old school ones from the, the 80s drives by and I was just drooling. And my grandpa looks at me and he didn't say, that's an evil guy. He screwed somebody over to get that. It was, look, you work hard, you create value for people, you make money, you can get one yourself. It wasn't looked at as a negative thing. It was looked at, this is something that you might want to strive for. Again, anyway, I probably went off topic there, but yeah, I agree. Most people are a bunch of haters and that's what kind of limits some people behind they think money is it's evil. a it's a vic, it's a victim mentality and if you don't have what i have it's because you're a victim that's the mentality and it drives me crazy but we're probably kindred spirits on that okay so again that kind of estate tax planning is an important thing and i talk to clients that have worked with other lawyers and they haven't even heard of this estate tax because of that feeling it doesn't affect most people i just think that it will as most recently as january 1st of 2013 the estate tax exemption, what you could give away estate tax-free, was only $1 million with a 55% tax on anything over and above that. That's eight years ago. Now, they fixed it the next day with the American Taxpayer Relief Act, but we fell off the fiscal cliff and we were at that. We went back to the 2001 level. We have no idea where it's going to be, and that's a lottery system. You're playing the lottery about when you're going to die and how big your estate is going to be. What we do have right now, though, and this is important for your listeners and, and, and your participants to understand, is that at least right now, the law says not just at death can you give away 11.7, you could do it during your lifetime. The way that this works is as soon as the IRS told wealthy people that if they were too wealthy, they had too many assets in their estate at death, they were going to get taxed again. It's okay, we'll just give it away during our lifetime. The IRS said, no, you can't do that. Whatever you give away during your life will count against what you can give away at death. And we call that the gift tax. Now, as I mentioned earlier, we're hearing they're wanting to reduce it down to three and a half million on the death estate tax side. But on the gift tax, what you can give away during your lifetime, they're talking about reducing it back to a million dollars. In essence, 10.7 million that you could gift away could go away. 
But at least right now you have that 11.7. And I've been doing a lot of work with clients that have been leveraging and using their gifting power that they have right now, because we don't know when it's going to be lost, but they have it right now to move assets out of their estate in a very strategic way. And there is a short window to do that because we don't really know when the tax laws are going to change. I think most people are betting next year, 2022, but there was again, another whole rumor out of Washington that they were going to try to push things through push things through by Labor Day. I don't think they'll be able to do that. That's pushing it pretty hard, but I do think before the end of the year, we're going to know what's going to happen next year. That's like the concept of people watch football. That's the wildcat offense, right? We don't know what's going to happen in the future. It's very much an art form, but right now you have that opportunity to pitch it out to the running back and, and get it out now before you take a chance what we are forced to do in the future. And also in the future might be good potentially. When what is it? George Steinbrenner died. It was a hundred million dollar limit. Twenty ten, he died three and a half, three hundred and fifty million dollar estate. That 2010 was the throw mama from the train year because if they died that year, there was no estate tax. Steinbrenner was mentioned in the news, but the biggest one was this guy down in Texas. He was an oil guy. And I think at the time, he was the 14th wealthiest man in the world. Again, this is 2010. And I, I believe it was a $19 billion estate that he had. His family saved $10 billion, $8 billion that's with a B in taxes just because he died that year. Now, one of the other things though that happened in 2010 is that stepped up basis went away, right? When you receive an asset at death, you get it with a clean tax base. So you could say sell it the next day and not have any capital gains tax to pay. But in 2010, when they said you can pass everything estate tax free, if you took that option, it, it had carryover basis. You had to take in essence what your parents' basis was in it. But look, if I can save a 50% estate tax and pay 25% capital gains tax or whatever it was back then, you're certainly going to take the second option. There's give and take, but why that's important now is this is all cyclical and we're seeing this stuff come back, right? They're wanting to get rid of stepped up basis at death. They're, they're talking about this, right? At death, whatever your basis in and your assets are as you pass them to your kids, they pass to the kids. And so they're going to pay capital gains tax and so put on all of those assets. Now, I think that's going to be a tougher tax law to pass because everybody has to deal with that. The average inheritance is 177000 and most of it consists of primary real estate, or primary residences. And there's no child that's going to want to inherit mom and dad's house without the ability to sell it the next day tax-free. The estate tax, it, again, it doesn't affect most people. Even if it goes back to $3.5 million, most people don't have $7 million net worth. But you have to also consider, like I said earlier, all of the assets. I glossed over this, but I want to touch on it you know, pretty quickly. Life insurance. Prior to going to law school in, in 99, I was a life insurance agent. Right? And the three most hated professions in the world are attorneys, life insurance agents, and used car salesmen. My best friend's a used car salesman, so I hit all three in some way. One of the selling points of life insurance is that it's not subject to tax. And I have a $5 million life insurance policy on my life, and my wife's the beneficiary, and I die, she gets $5 million completely income tax rate. The only reason for that really is because the insurance companies have this really strong lobby in Congress, and they've been able to carve out the definition of income to include life insurance death benefit. That's it. It's the only reason. The issue, though, is that my wife would now have $5 million of cash as part of her estate, 
And now is there an estate tax problem? How to plan for that life insurance death benefit becomes a big one. Anyway, I don't want to, that's a much more kind of static tax issue. And it's definitely something that can be dealt with, but there is a small window of opportunity that could be going away. So you close that portion out, right? I think it's important for folks to be aware of this stuff and understand it because things are going to change. And in the very end, you may just be stuck. It just may be how the times are, but there may be opportunities to do that wildcat offense, the ball to the right. When we're all stuck, right? It's the way the times are. And we're just going to have to live through it. Now, again, I'm, I'm not coming from any kind of political side on this. I just, as a tax attorney, I, I hate paying taxes. I pay my fair share and all of those kind of things. But, and by the way, if you ever work with a tax attorney that likes taxes, you're working with the wrong attorney. But the the, the point is that there really are planning techniques that can put you in control and you in power of what happens with your legacy at your death. Do you want to leave it to your kids in the most tax efficient manner? Or maybe you don't, right? You could have, and I have clients that are this way that say, yeah, I want to give my kids some, but I really want to benefit charities in some way. Charities don't pay taxes, including the estate tax. So you have a hundred million dollar estate and 80 million of it is going to go to charity. We don't have an estate tax problem anyway, but it's how do we leverage and use that financial wealth to accomplish what this next issue deals with? Just to refresh your memory, because we've talked about so much, the erosive effects being number one, the division of the estate, spreading it out at death means that everybody gets less assets and we lose power. Second issue, the estate tax because if at every generation a family is having to pay 50% of the tax to the government, that's going to weed down a family's financial wealth over time. But then the biggest issue that bleeds into this shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generation phenomenon, it is fact, it happens. It's not just this idea, it is fact, is the third party attacks to the wealth, meaning you leave an asset to a child and they go through a divorce or they get sued or they start a business and it fails and they have to declare bankruptcy. And what mom and dad gave them gets taken by those creditors. And then, and mismanagement, right? You give the assets to the kids and they go just buy Ferraris. I don't have anything against Ferraris, beautiful cars, and I like cars, but I expect my kids to make the money themselves to buy their own damn Ferrari. They're not using the money that I left them to buy the Ferrari. What I, How do what I think is the worst one is like the parents give a $1.5 million estate the kids go and break it down and go build a $3 million house with their $80,000 a year salary and get a new mortgage on that. That's Does that count as a third party attack themselves? It counts as mismanagement. And that brings into exactly this discussion of how do you deal with each of those issues? First of all, third party attacks are pretty easy to deal with. One of the things that I see in, in a lot of people's planning lane is that at their death, again, they might leave it in trust for the benefit of their kids for a while, understanding that an 18-year-old is probably not well-equipped to handle a lot of assets. You probably were at 18. I was not. But hey, we're going to hang on to it for a little while longer. We're going to put a trustee in charge of it who's more responsible. But then when the kids reach 25, 30, 35, these are very common ages, we'll start doling the money out to them, literally requiring the trustee to give one-third of the assets outright to the child. And to me, that's a huge no-no. What I do, like in my planning for my kids, in fact, I've done this in the planning for my mom. I keep mentioning my grandpa, just as a really big person in my life. But he'd done very well in life and he passed away in 2006. My mom's an only child. 
And she became a pretty wealthy woman. And I'm a mama's boy through and through. I talk to her every morning on the way to work. And I, I don't want this lovely woman going anywhere. But when she does launch off, I want the last check she writes but to bounce. But I, I don't need her money. I just find. But when it comes to me, it's coming to me in a trust and to my sister in a trust that will exist for our entire lifetime. And the reason for that is, number one, we deal with that erosive effect we just talked about, this estate tax issue. Look, I'm going to do what I can to have an estate tax problem. It's not the only thing I'm striving for in life, but if my wife and I have amassed an estate of $20 million, let's say, I don't need my mom dumping on top of me half of her estate because now my net worth increases. When I die, those same assets are subject to an additional estate tax. I want to enjoy those assets, right? I'm not completely altruistic. By her leaving it in a trust that exists for my entire lifetime, it never becomes part of my estate. When I die, if I'm worth $50 million and there's $5 million in that trust that my mom left me, that's not part of my estate. It generationally skips the estate tax and goes on to my children, her grandchildren, estate tax-free. That's a benefit of that lifetime trust. But then in terms of third-party attacks, if my wife decides that she's tired of my horrible sense of humor and she runs off to the Bahamas with the pool boy, the assets my mom leaves me in that trust are for my benefit, nobody else. My wife is not a beneficiary of that trust, a divorcing or a, a bankruptcy trustee. I literally could go through an entire bankruptcy, come out the other side of that bankruptcy with the assets my mom left me entirely intact. Now, the downside of that, of course, is this term lifetime. And does this mean that my mom has, in my case, chosen some third-party trustee at her death to be in charge of what she leaves me and my sister? Thankfully, she has this idea that I know how to run a trust. But her death, I get to be in control of what she leaves me as my own trustee. It's not part of my estate and not available to creditors, even though I'm entirely in control. That's a big thing that your client or your uh, associate should think about doing within their planning, leaving it in a trust, but not a trust that will ever make or be required to make outright distributions to that beneficiary. Okay. Now, one, one potential issue with that that I'm seeing is your sister, your sibling. Now, she's at the mercy of you, the trustee, right? Nope. She gets to be her own trustee over her share. Okay. Everything stays together but there's individual trustees for their portion. Yeah, we have a family partnership that my mom and my sister and and myself own. And that's where we concentrate the wealth. We hold it all together so it's not split apart. And and then ultimately what will happen at my mom's passing is I'll own half of that partnership in this trust that I mentioned. And my sister will own half of the partnership in the trust, as I mentioned. And we need to work together on running the partnership, but we run our trusts however we want. I'm very handsy when I talk. What happens if like your sister's a drug addict or just not, just doesn't care? So you, now you bring up a funny story. I, I got to tell another story about my grandpa. He had this fabulous sense of humor up until the last breath that he took and sounds a little bit morbid, but we have this small, strange little family and we are around his house talking to him about his burial instructions. And we always thought he wanted to be buried next to grandma and the family plot. And he said, no, I've changed my mind and, and I want to be cremated. I said, okay, where do you want him? Where do you want your ashes spread? And he said, okay, Andrew, we have a small ranch up in Montana. And he said, he loved it. One of his favorite places on earth. He said, take a box of ashes and spread it up at the ranch in Montana. I said, okay, no problem. He had this river in Idaho that he loved. And there was this one spot on the stretch of the river 
he would always stop and have lunch when we were fishing. And I probably stopped there a hundred times over the years with him. He said, I want a box of ashes spread on the bank of that river. And I'm not going to tell you where, so you can't turn me into the APA. But he said, okay, what do you want done with this third box of ashes? And the whole family's waiting on bated breath. And he says, Andrew, I want you to take that third box of ashes to Nordstrom's. And I I want you to sprinkle my ashes in every planet at Nordstrom's that you can find, because that's going to give me the best possible chance that my sister or that your your, your sister will actually come and visit me after my death. She has a quadruple black belt in shopping. I love her to death, but she doesn't really have a good sense of finances. She hasn't wanted to learn about it. Big heart, amazing person but just not really the most financial savvy. You have to deal with that. And what I mentioned more cavalierly just a moment ago, that she would be her own trustee. To an extent, we have some safeguards in there just to protect her financial misdecisions. But in terms of drug dependency, and it doesn't have to be drug, it could be any substance abuse, illegal or legal, right? You can have prescription drug abuse. Anything that is causing an impact to that beneficiary, you've got to deal with because- Money's not good or bad, it just is. But what it has a tendency to do is enhance a good or a bad characteristic, right? You have a child with a drug problem and they get a bunch more money. It's going to increase that drug problem. It's not going to solve it. So you absolutely need to have in your trust a way to deal with that. We probably have two or three pages alone on the ability for, say, a trustee that is managing a beneficiary's trust who hasn't yet been put in charge of their trust, like my mom would put me in charge of. But like my kids, no way, they will never, they won't be in charge of their own trust until their behavior changes a lot. You put in some of those safeguards where the trustee of the trust can suspend making distributions to that beneficiary in the event the trustee knows it's going to be used for an inappropriate purpose doesn't mean that the beneficiary can't still benefit from the trust. For example, you're worried about giving that beneficiary money because he or she are going to take it and go buy drugs, alcohol, whatever, and, and they've got the problem. The trustee can pay the person's mortgage directly. They can make sure that the mortgage payment is going to get paid. So you have to have some of those. And then we even put in ours the ability to, obviously, drug testing gets involved, but also get counseling and have that counseling paid for. They get a second chance, right? Although you have to be really careful about that. Drug has a huge recidivism, right? Those are some of the hard things that you have to craft around and identifying those is a really big part of it. And in fact, that's where we always start out with saying is that people that successfully navigate this idea of transferring wealth with more purpose, and also I think preserving family harmony, they routinely spend time knowing who they are. And families don't really do that very often any longer. How often do you sit down and say, who are we as a family? What makes us unique? What are our core values? And that's the other aspect to what this lifetime trust provides. It's a way for you to to pass on that personalization. I mentioned earlier that I'd, I'd come back to this. This is where you as a family could come in and say, these are the five core values or I don't know, however many values you want to put in there that we really want our trust to, to be driven by. If you were to look at my trust document, you would see that there's 35 pages just giving directions to my trustees about the type of things that I would want to do. Because I want to incentive my, incentivize my kids in much more than the static way that a trust is written, where it says the assets in that trust for the beneficiary are to be used for their health, education, maintenance, support. 
that's not where I want it to end. I want my kids to be able to use it for entrepreneurial activities. I want to use it while they're alive to help teach them some of these financial uh, literacy ideas, right? Financial literacy is an extremely important thing for a parent to teach to a child because they don't learn it anywhere else. They don't learn it in school. You wouldn't want them learning financial literacy in school. Last thing you want to do is take financial advice from a, a teacher, joking. But the point being is that you as the, the parent, whatever, however you define that, it really does have that responsibility for taking on that financial education to your kids. How are you going to do that? Incentivizing them is just incredibly powerful. You'll see things in people's trusts where they will provide for the family to be really thought of as a bank. And if a child wants something from the family bank, they don't just get it given to them. They have to apply for a loan. And if it's for a business, I don't care if it's a lemonade stand or like I have this family, actually my son is 15 now. He wants to start buying cars and, and, and reselling them and fixing them up or whatever. Not in my experience, a real lucrative process, but I, he needs to learn his lessons and I'll help him. And I'll say, okay, look, I'll loan you the money to help buy your first car. But I'll tell you what, you're going to come to the whole family, your brother, your sister, and, and us, your mom and your dad, because you're taking the family's money and you are going to deliver us a, a, a business purpose and I'll help you write it. I'm teaching him how to write a business plan. And I want to understand what you plan on doing. You've done all the, the due diligence on costs, startups, and all of these different kinds of things. I want him to start learning those things. Even if he blows the $1,000 or whatever that I might lend him, he's had a learning experience. Now, if he has an outstanding loan, he's got to regularly come back and deliver a state of the business address, if you will to the family because that's creating accountability, but it's also teaching each other. There's no better way to learn a topic or a subject than to have to teach it. And my kids now are teaching each other about what they're doing right and what they're doing wrong in all of these activities. Because I know my kids are going to make mistakes. You learn from your mistakes, but I'll be really pissed off if all of my kids make the exact same mistake. And if they can learn from each other, this is what I did. This is what I did wrong. You're creating family togetherness. You're hopefully creating synergy for the, the kids working together. My kids are going to have to work together in how my plan is set up. Something happens to me, nothing, you know, it doesn't go a third. Like I said, it all stays together and they're going to have to work together on managing it under the principles that we've all laid out. And I think the beauty of that is it's kind of like when you go for a job interview, if you've never been on the in interviewee panel, you don't have that empathy. You don't have that insight but your kids kind of evaluating their siblings plans for the money they gain that empathy and they realize how next time they come up for their proposal next time they're in the hot seat how to how it comes across and presents it and then and ultimately they grow it's whimsical when they're young but it gets more serious bigger dollars in the future and all this the foundation was set that's the point and i, I literally did this with a lemonade stand where we priced out the lemonade or the, the lemons, priced out the sugar, priced out the water, all this kind of stuff, had them do a whole progression on it. And it was for my daughter. And then she had to come back and say, of course, the 500 bucks was gone, but she, she were definitely in the hole on that deal. But she had to explain that. And she was doing that at nine years old. Now, I'm not saying that's what everybody needs to do or, or should be doing, but there's all of these different ways that you can do it. What you don't want to do is just throw money at somebody with no accountability because somebody else's money never means as much as your own money means to you. We have this, this uh, parable that we, we tell in our book 
this gentleman's created these wonderful businesses and he has this heir apparent, this son that he wants to leave all of these businesses to. But the kid's a spendthrift, right? The standard go out and spend everything and he wants this kid to get serious. So he tells the kid, look, you go and, and make $10,000 and you bring it back to me and, and we'll talk about me handing over your business. So the kid says, ah, I can, it's 10,000. That's not that much. I can get that easy. But he goes out and he talks to one of his, his buddies and he says, hey, look, you know, give me 10,000 bucks. And, and when my dad makes me in charge of the businesses, I'll pay you back 20. And his friend says, no problem. Here you go. Here's $10,000. So the, the kid comes marching into the dad's office, hands him the, the $10,000 in cash. The dad stands up, walks across the office to the fireplace that's burning, throws the $10,000 into the fireplace, burns it up completely. And he looks at his son and he says, I know you didn't earn that money. You go out make $10,000, bring it back to me and we'll talk. So the guy's going, oh my Lord, how did dad know that? I've got to talk to somebody that's smarter. So he actually calls one of his dad's advisors, thinking that he can get his dad's advisor in on the scheme and he knows what his dad is worth. So he talks to the advisor and he says, hey, look, you lend me $10,000 and I'll give you a percentage of dad's businesses when he turns it over to me. No problem. Here's 10,000 bucks, right? Kid comes marching into dad's office, hands him the $10,000. Dad Stands up, walks across the room, throws it in the fire, burns it up. I know you didn't make that money. Go out and make $10,000. This is your last chance. Now, the kid by this point is really going, look, dad's buddies are going to sell out on me. That's the only way they could have found out. What am I going to do? I better go out and earn this money. So he does it, right? Mows lawns, does all of the standard stuff, makes $10,000, comes into his dad's office, hands in the $10,000. Dad proceeds to get up, walk across the room, throw the money in the fire. The kid jumps up and grabs the money out of the fire. Dad says, I know you earned that money. It means more to you when you do it yourself. We always say people need to put in sort of three things when they're doing philanthropy or when a lot of our, our clients that are into generosity or want to include charitable organizations. It's easy to give away somebody else's money, but you've got to put in your own time, treasure, and or talent into whatever you're doing. So this idea of accountability creates the scenario where I am earning it or I am losing it. And if I lose it, I need to explain why. Now, they pay the loan back, they get a higher credit rating and I'll loan them more. Again, it's one of those things where I'm not trying to be dictatorial with my kids. You have to be really careful about that. You don't want to create a structure that's not going to work 50 years from now. But you want to try to create a, a situation where kids are held accountable in some way. In, in all, not just accountable in terms of what we've been talking about so far, but also accountable in, in terms of what's expected of them. And families just don't have these conversations, right? We have a whole process with Entrusted for families to go through and have this discussion where at the end of the day, every family member is very clear with their five core values. And the family then creates a sort of a family crest motto, whatever, but of their five core values. And what's interesting about the core values is they're completely developed based upon your life experience. Let's just say, for example, uh, one of my core values is, is honesty, which sounds strange coming from a lawyer. But what that means to me is any meaningful relationship in my life beyond the friend that you see every year at the Christmas party and say hi to. But everybody that's in my life that I have a meaningful connection to, there has to be this element of honesty. If not, it just won't work. I know myself. 
And that comes from the fact that early on in my life, there was somebody in our family that was really dishonest with us. And it, it really shaped my life and a lot of the decisions that I made in life that were turned out to be good. If I'm now having a discussion with my family about why honesty is one of my core values, what I'm doing is telling my history, my failures, my successes. I'm not being preached. I'm not sitting down and telling my son, Thomas, who's my oldest, hey, look, pal, you were really dishonest last week when you did this, right? I'm not scolding him. It's not in a bad light, pessimistic light. Honesty is important to me. This is why so. This is why I think it should be important to everybody. But then not everybody's going to have the same core values. In fact, if you take the 44 values that we concentrate on, you would have 15 million different renditions as those 44 values were condensed into five for each person. And then you can play it in the reverse as well. I can play it with my wife and I can say, hey, look, these are the five core values I see in you. And that's a powerful conversation because you're validating that other person. And again, it's a transformative way to start that discussion. It's very similar to people read the book out there, EOS Traction. They tell you to find these values. And it seems a little bit of a roundabout way to get there, but it's really the only sustainable way of governing this money. That's always the, the first question is these are all great ideas, but how do I do it? How do I start the discussion? And that's where we're unique, I think, in terms of the other books that are out there. I mean, there's a lot of books that are out there talking about this stuff and I don't need to name them, but they're good books and there's nothing wrong with them. But when the rubber meets the road and you say, okay, how do I do it? How do I bin this, begin these discussions with our with my family? That's where the process we developed, I think, is extremely helpful. We basically tell a family that we need about six hours of their time to really get in there and understand the dynamics that are going on. And a lot of times you'll find roadblocks. Families, a lot of families have communication problems, whether it be they're not communicating at all. When they do communicate, it's not productive. I have members of my family that I can't have a conversation with without it turning into an argument. There's And, and so if you can't communicate on this as a family, that's something that needs to be overcome. And through this, I think we've taken about 300 plus families through this process now. And we've de developed a lot of the outlets to that, right? A family has a, a connection problem or a communication problem, or like you were mentioning, Lane, if they have a substance abuse issue. Look, you have a child out there with a substance abuse issue. The last thing you're potentially, or the last thing you're thinking about is meeting with a blood-sucking vampire lawyer about death and taxes and doing your trust, right? Your family is in crisis and you're dealing with a member of that family. Now, we've got to deal with that situation in some way, whether it's we get help for that person or that person's not willing to get help and you decide, okay, then you're not going to be part of the family legacy that we're building. We can't afford all of the damage that is taking place to the rest of the family because you were choosing not to participate because you can't. And I've had those families that have made that hard choice, not cutting a member of the family out at all, but saying, we like this. It's just that we have this thorn in our side with this person that can't get their life together. And it shouldn't punish those who do have their life together any more than it already has throughout their life. What are some of those common safeguards for maybe not drugs in particular, because I think we beat that one up, but other issues under the surface with when these, in these consoles with families and how do you protect against, how do you write it into a trust? The, the biggest, again, communication is by far the biggest one. And I'll, but I want to hit that from a different angle so that I answer your question in not a different way, but, but it from another issue. We wrote an article, David York and I, he's a co-author on our books 
but for it was for Trust in Estates magazine in 2017. And Trust in Estates magazine in our nerd world is our our peer reviewed periodical, and you got to do annotations and case studies. And it's I'll never write one of these damn things again. But we called it Grats versus Gratitude. That was the title of the the article. Now, a a grat in our world is a strategy for transferring wealth from one generation to the next. It stands for grantor retained annuity trust. But the point of the title was, are you trying to pass on, again, written to our our colleagues, other attorneys in the estate world, are you trying to, to help your clients pass on wealth or gratitude? Okay. And we took a look at all of our families that, again, had done this very well. And one of the things that we found was the, the biggest deciding factor about whether or not a family stays in harmony, meaning that a year after mom and dad dies, they're still having Thanksgiving dinner together. And we have this estate, a saying in the estate planning world that you, you never truly know a person until you share an inheritance with them. Because the best families, the clause will come out and people will fight over, fight over mom's engagement ring. I don't think it doesn't say anything bad to the person. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're greedy. Although I've seen a lot of greed in these scenarios, but you lose a loved one and you go through that emotional toil and then you hang on to a personal item. I remember when I went duck hunting with my dad for the first time and he gave me a shotgun and and to use and I want that, whatever it is, it has this emotional attachment that because of the emotional turmoil you're going through with that lost one, you latch onto that and I will see people fight over tooth and nail over that. So the point of this is the, the, the biggest deciding factor is openness, being open with your family and having the open dialogue. And that's a really counterintuitive thing. Not so much for our generations. Our generations are, are getting a little bit more comfortable with it, but you have the silent generation. There was a reason they were called the silent generation. They did not want to talk about money. They did not want to talk about finances. Include the family. David one of my partners, he has this great story about this family he was talking to this with. And the mom and dad look at him and say, God, we, we try to instill our kids all these financial ideas and how lucky they are all the time. And we did that recently on a trip because we sat in first class and we made them sit and coach. You're going, no, you don't get it, pal. Your kids still get it. Your kids still get that they're flying to Maui, that you're sitting in first class, that there are assets there. Don't act like they're stupid people. Include them. Let them know though what they're going to expect, even if that they expect nothing, because then the anger, if you will, isn't directed to you or isn't directed to their siblings. It's directed at you who's six feet under and they can jump on your grave all you want. So the, the point being open the books is a really big thing that I encourage people to do. And we really feel that kids can start getting involved in some of these discussions in age appropriate ways, but as early as five years old. Or just lie to them. Tell them it's your grandparents' trust. It's not yours. No, that's a joke. Don't do that. <laughs> no, because again, that, that's our second principle. With the first principle with trusted families is they, like I said, they know who they are and, and they know who they believe. But the second principle is that entrusted families prepare the next generation for the wealth rather than concentrating on preparing the wealth for the next generation. And that's all estate planning is doing right now is concentrating on preparing the wealth without, again, the consequence it has on that next generation. But without question, including kids into meetings. I was in meetings with family advisors, financial advisors, accountants. I was told to sit in the corner, shut up and suck my thumb, but I was also told to listen. And if I had a question, I could ask it and so forth. But it was a way 
for for you to start speaking that language. There's a whole nother financial language that's out there and you've got to be able to speak it. Good points. Now, I know you got to get running here, Andrew. Um, why don't you get your information out there in case people want to get a hold of you folks, read some of your guys' content. Yeah, a bit of hold of me is, it, it's corny, and it's but it's through email, teamandrew at yourcowl.com. That's T-E-A-M-A-N-D-R-E-W at Y-O-R-K-H-O-W-E-L-L.com. That'll go to my two paralegals and my three assistants and me. That way I, I never list an e- I never miss an email. Uh, yeah, welcome to reach out to me. Love to help anybody in my office can coordinate a time for us to talk. All right. Thanks for listening, folks. Again, if you want or looking for a peer network of in the family office on a mastermind, the phone, what we call it, check it out, simplepassacashflow.com slash journey. If not, pay your professionals and uh, good luck on your own. We'll see you guys next time. This website offers very general information concerning real estate for investment purposes. Every investor situation is unique. Always seek the services of licensed third-party appraisers and inspectors to verify the value and condition of any property you intend to purchase. Use the services of professional title and escrow companies and licensed tax, investment, and or legal advisor before relying on any information contained herein. Information is not guaranteed as in every investment there is risk. The content found here is just my opinion and things change and I reserve the right to change my mind. Above all else, do your own analysis and think for yourself because in the end, you are the only person who is going to look out for your best interests.